0: Wonderful, what a wonderful morning. I'm still living in the afterglow of the Ford Center last weekend. Um, It's wonderful. And uh, this service today, this weekend. Today we begin a new series of messages that will take us into the seven detailed accounts of people becoming Christians in the book of Acts. And we're calling it A Better Story. What if your life could take a turn for the best? And each week we're going to see real people just like you and me move from one place to another. Their lives taking a turn for the best. So today we're going to look at the multitude in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 as they moved from guilt to grace. They had called for the blood of Jesus and They were confronted about that. They were guilty as charged, but they moved from guilt to grace. Then next week, we'll move from confusion to clarity. This is from Acts chapter 8. The Ethiopian official who met the young deacon Philip on the road to Gaza, and his life was changed for the best. The next week, we'll look at Acts chapter 9, from rage to redemption. The... uh, The Apostle Paul wasn't always the Apostle Paul. He was Saul, and he was breathing out threats against the infant church, and he was merciless in his persecution of Christians and Christian families. But his anger was redeemed, and we'll look at that uh, turn for the best in the life of Saul. Then the next week, from seeking to security, the household of Cornelius. This is a man who was a Gentile. He was searching for God, and he needed a direction and so Peter was directed by God in a vision to go to the household of a man named Cornelius and he and his whole household were converted to Christ. Then in chapter 16 of Acts the next week we'll look at from living to life. This is Lydia who was a seller of purple. She was a bright, successful businesswoman but she was not a Christian. She became a Christian and she moved from just making a living to making a life. Then, also in chapter 16 of Acts, we'll look at the Philippian jailer, who was ready to run himself through with a sword. He was suicidal, but he moved from being suicidal to being saved. And then we'll conclude with Acts chapter 17, uh, the Apostle Paul speaking on Mars Hill to the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. They were riddled with doubt, but many of them moved from doubt to discipleship. That's where we're going in the next seven weeks. And it makes perfect sense for us to be living here for the next few weeks because we've just come away from a season of meditating on the cross. We've just come away from last Lord's Day, Easter Sunday, when we celebrated the empty tomb, the truth that Jesus has broken our chains of sin and death, and now we're gonna see how the crucifixion and the resurrection are followed by the preaching and teaching of the message of Jesus to the whole world, so that all people everywhere can see their lives. Take a turn for the best. Look at these words in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. The Christ will suffer, that's a clear reference to the crucifixion, and rise from the dead, a clear reference to the resurrection, rise from the dead on the third day, and Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. That's the life change that we're talking about, beginning at Jerusalem. So I hope you see how the crucifixion and the resurrection are followed by the preaching and teaching of the message of Jesus to the whole world, beginning at Jerusalem, and so we'll begin this morning in Jerusalem. And since we're calling these messages a better story, Let me tell you the story of what went on after the resurrection. Well, Jesus appeared to his disciples no less than four times. The first time, he miraculously entered a locked room and showed the disciples his hands and his side. And John, who was there, he was an eyewitness, said they were all overjoyed. But Thomas was absent. So on the second occasion when Jesus appeared to them, again miraculously entering a locked room, he took time to personally convince Thomas that he was indeed alive. Then the third time, Jesus met with his disciples on the seashore for a fish and chips breakfast. And he personally took the time to restore Peter to his calling to be a fisher of men. Now, his fourth and final appearance was on the Mount of Ascension when Jesus commissioned the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after speaking these words, he was taken up into the clouds, and as the disciples stood there, sun tanning their tonsils, as they watch him ascend into the clouds, two men in white said, fellas, snap out of it. (laughs) Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go. And we are living in anticipation of that day. So the disciples got busy and they prayed and they selected Matthias to join them to take the place of Judas, one of the 12, and the number of believers by then had increased to 120. Well, 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, 50 days after his resurrection from the dead, the disciples were all together in one place and something miraculous happened. Jesus had told them to go and wait for power on high and this was the day there was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind from heaven now we're not talking about an east to west wind or a west to east wind here we're talking about a violent wind from heaven we're talking about a wind that was coming from heaven and it was happening indoors and There were also what appeared to be tongues of fire resting on their heads, cloven tongues of fire. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, the disciples. And they began to speak the word of God in languages that they had never before studied. And so, very quickly, a large and diverse crowd assembled, thousands. And they were amazed that they were all hearing the word of God in their own native tongue. Of course, there were some cynics on the fringe of the crowd who made fun of the apostles and accused them of being drunk but Peter spoke up to defend them saying come on folks these men are not drunk it's only nine o'clock in the morning and the big fisherman went on to say that what was happening was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. It was a supernatural demonstration of the power of God. And then, look out, Peter steps up in the same place where he had denied with a curse that he even knew Jesus. And here's what he said in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. "...which God did among you through him, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, and for all who are far off. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Everyone was filled with awe. All the believers were together. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This event in history... Is called the day of Pentecost. It's the day the church was born. And it is a day that 3,000 people, a crowd, double the number that you could seat shoulder to shoulder in this worship center, saw their lives turn for the best as they moved from guilt to grace. So... Do you remember the first time that you ever felt guilt? Well, it is vivid in my memory. I had gone to the grocery store in our little town at 1200 to buy some glue to put together a model car. Well, the glue cost 20 cents. And I had a dime. That's it. So I was stuck. I, I had just walked six blocks up to the IGA. And even carried my model car uh, in a box with me. Now I was going to have to go back home and try to scare up another dime. But I noticed that there was only one cashier at the register, and he was busy, so I took the top off my box and I put the tube of glue inside, and I headed for the door. And old Mr. Lang, his wife was my first grade teacher had finished checking out his customer, and he said, Hey, Kenny, come here. Let me see what you've got. I froze at first, then I sheepishly walked back and handed him the box, and he took off the lid. And he said, That's a neat car. What model is it? Did you put it together by yourself? What color are you going to paint it? I didn't hear a word he said. I was scrambling mentally to formulate a convincing alibi. (laughs) My heart was about to beat out of my chest. The color drained from my face. I thought I was going to pass out. He put the lid on the box. He handed it back to me, and he made eye contact. And I remember that look. And I don't ever want to see that look again. And I wish I could say that I broke. And I fessed up, but I didn't. I thought I got away with it. But did I really? I still carry a modicum of guilt today, 60 years later. <laughs> but it does help that I just publicly confessed it to you. <laughs> Unlike my wife, who was about the same age when her mother sent her in to take a bath, saying, you may use a cap full of bubble bath in the bath water, Kayleen, Well, after a few minutes, her mother asked through the bathroom door, Kayleen, how many caps of bubble bath did you put in? Kayleen said, one. Two minutes later, out she came, soaking wet, wrapped in a towel to tell her mother through tears, I lied, mother. I put in two caps. That's what I call a conscience right there. (laughs) Do you remember reading Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Tell-Tale Heart? when you were in school. It's written in the first person by an unnamed narrator who describes a murder that he committed. And he dismembered the body and he hid it under the floorboards in his kitchen. When the police came to investigate, here's what he writes. "'The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease.'" They sat while I answered cheerily and chatted of familiar things, but before long, I felt myself getting pale, and I wished for them to be gone. My head ached. I began to hear a recurring beat in my ears. Inwardly, I foamed, I raved, I swore, I moved the chair upon which I had been sitting, grating it upon the boards, but... The noise arose over all and continually increased, and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Oh, they heard. They suspected. They knew I could bear their hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt I must scream or die again and again. Hark! Louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more, I admit the deed, tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe was writing about the paralyzing experience that we know as guilt, and we've all felt it. Every one of us has felt guilt. So what is the cause of guilt? Let's get at that. What is the cause of guilt? Why do we feel this emotion, this thing that we call guilt anyhow. There's only one rational explanation, whether you are a secular humanist or a committed Christian. It is sin. That's what Jesus is talking about in John 16, 8, when he said, when he, that is the counselor, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. More specifically, guilt is the result of unconfessed sin. It's when we're hiding it, we're living with it. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband killed, took her as his wife, and then he tried to live with what he had done. But he gives us his testimony in a written prayer in Psalm 32. This is what was going on in David when he's trying to live with his unconfessed sin. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That sounds a whole lot like the telltale heart, doesn't it? Then, I acknowledged my sin to you. This is his prayer to God. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave, here it is, the guilt of my sin. Now this is exactly what happened to the multitude on Pentecost that we just read about. They had lived for over 50 days with what they had done to Jesus, shedding innocent blood. So Peter got to the end of his message and he said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were ready to get rid of the guilt for what they had done to Jesus. They wanted to be in a right relationship with God. And I know this morning that I'm speaking to someone who is living with unconfessed sin and it is eating you alive. Your conscience is doing a number on you. How do you get rid of it? How do you move from guilt to grace? Well, you've got to start by telling yourself the truth. You've got to have a talk with yourself about where you are. And then you need to confess it. To your wonderful counselor, just like David did. You confess it to your wonderful counselor first. And then maybe it would help you to confess it to, to a pastor or to your spouse or to a trusted Christian friend. James chapter 5, verse 16 commands us to confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. And that is a command. That is something that we take seriously. Those are imperatives. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Don't live with the guilt of unconfessed sin. To move from guilt to grace, you've got to start by making friends with the truth, the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. The truth is your friend. The truth is not your enemy. And I say this, and I know that some of us just don't believe that's a good idea. Honest confessions, spiritual accountability to someone else, those are terrifying things concepts for you. You've not had, nor you de- desire, nor do you desire that level of relationship with another person. You withhold yourself, even from the closest people to you, your spouse, your children. You withhold yourself. You're going to keep your secrets. Well, others believe that confession's a good idea. They think it's a good thing in the abstract but not in the concrete. It's a good idea, but you just don't want to practice it because you value your reputation more than your character. Now listen, reputation and character are two different things, and character is better. Reputation is what other people think is true about you. Character is the true you. Character is who you are down deep where you really live. Character is being real. And it's so easy to Please people, impress people, have people think you're something that you're not, and you hide stuff. Hiding is kind of the knee-jerk response to guilt. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They they were guilty, they felt guilty, they ran and hid from God. And when we don't confess our sin, our guilt plagues us with feelings of unworthiness. You remember the prodigal son, he got his speech together. He said, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be your son. That's what unconfessed sin does. It gives us a feeling of unworthiness. And then, of course, the most severe guilt has a potential to even drive someone to take their lives, as in the case of Judas. Listen, friends. Our culture, especially Hollywood, Broadway, Washington, D.C., that all dominate the media, they all feed on posturing. They all feed on pretense. But Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. There is something about it. When everyone speaks well of you, when you get these accolades, you get all this adoration from your fan base, every time you make a move, it winds up on the front page of People magazine. It has the capacity to produce Falseness in you. you. You don't. You don't become a. Real, you're not a real person. You're a. You are concerned about image, and you wind up being, being, an image instead of a person. I don't think we get this. The fact that we can be too popular. The fact that when all people speak well of you, that it feeds your narcissism, it fuels your self-importance, and it results in you becoming less transparent. It results in you becoming less vulnerable, less humble, less honest, feeling more guilty as we withhold our real selves from others. If we aren't already false, we'll become false over time. So push back on unconfessed sin, and if you do, you'll short-circuit the cause of, of guilt makes me want to ask you when was the last time that you were thorough in a confession of your failures and shortcomings when is the last time you got on your knees in prayer before the Lord and just laid it out before him it is the way we experience God's grace whether we're coming to Christ for the first time or whether we're seeking to live faithfully as a Christ follower. None of us is perfect, and we all need those times when we open our hearts and lay ourselves out before the Lord. And sometimes it helps to have a confessor, a friend you can trust to keep a confidence and share with them. The cause of guilt, we've seen it. It's unconfessed sin. What's the cure for guilt? Well, the cure for guilt is revealed in the text. This audience on the day of Pentecost, they had thought all their lives that the answer to the guilt of sin was good works under the law. That was the system. But our guilt cannot be removed by our good works. It cannot be erased by our good works. You see, curing guilt is not even possible for us. We can't make forgiveness and new life happen by our efforts. Remember the cross. And the empty tomb. Guilt is the emotion that God gives us to bring us to the point that we see our true need. Guilt and shame are not a bad thing if they will bring us to the place of healing and wholeness. Remember hearing a doctor say, be glad it hurts because so long as a diseased appendix hurts, there's hope for a safe removal. The danger is if it doesn't hurt. That means the appendix has burst and the poison has spread throughout the body. So be glad. Be glad when you sin, that your conscience does a number on you, that it causes you inward pain, that it leads you toward repentance. That's what happened in our text. The multitude asked in desperation, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You only need to surrender. You only need to give up. You only need to let go. Let God have his way in you. Repentance in your heart is the changing of direction it's like you're walking one direction I'm living for myself I'm living for myself I'm living for the world and we turn around and we decide I'm gonna live for Christ and you take that turn for the best baptism is the response of obedient faith baptism is not a work that you do it's something to which you submit you exercise your faith in baptism you exercise your faith in what God will do for you in this act of surrender and submission. And if someone is too proud to be obedient in both repentance and baptism, they cannot fully experience God's grace. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And with his grace comes his blessing. Now, this is where your life takes a turn for the best. Here's the best. When you experience His grace, three things happen. One, cleansing happens. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. There's a cleansing that happens. And then secondly, there's peace in our hearts. Chapter 5 of Romans, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that almost everyone in this room has experienced this, this cleansing. They've experienced this peace. Another thing that that is a blessing of God's grace is access to Romans chapter 5 verse 2 says through whom that is Jesus we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So let me take you back one last time to our text to the better story for 3000 people who on the day of Pentecost had their lives take a turn for the best as they moved from guilt to grace. Just look at these phrases. Everyone was filled with awe. You ever been filled with awe? You know how that feels? The believers were gathered together and had everything in common. All of a sudden, there's community. They gave to anyone as he had need. Their hearts are enlarged for people around them in need. Every day they continued to meet together. They began to see God's treasure in earthen vessels in the other people around them. And they loved to to be together, to assemble together. And then it says, they broke bread and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. No wonder the Lord added to their number daily. It was the way these people lived. It was what they radiated. It was what they projected. And every time a guest comes in these doors into our assembly, I wish we could replicate what you see here in verses 43 through 47. I wish people would see this in us. Everyone filled with awe. Believers together having everything in common. The rest of it. Let's never be cynical to the point that just another Lord's Day, just another church service, we're into the routine, into the repetition of it all. Let the grace of God just break out of your life. Look at where the multitude started that day. At 8 o'clock in the morning, at 8 o'clock in the morning, on the day of Pentecost, they publicly ridiculed the disciples who were supernaturally empowered to speak to them in their own languages. They accused them of being drunk. They disrespected them and attempted to discredit them. But Peter stood up and he was courageous enough to say, you with the help of wicked men put Jesus on the cross, but God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And they moved from guilt to grace by a simple act of surrender and obedient faith. And we want every person to take this turn for the best today. And if you're ready, after the service is over this morning, our section hosts and our pastors will come to you. If you just are seated after the closing of our service, you remain in this worship center, we'll come to you and sit down and talk with you. We've got a good long time before the 1045 service and we'll have an opportunity to engage with you. But Right now, I want to ask our servers to go and prepare the emblems of the Lord's Supper. As a church, the reason why we have a very high view of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, is because they were a part of the activity of the church on the day of Pentecost. When these people, 3,000 of them, moved from guilt to grace, baptism and the Lord's Supper was a part of their experience they broke bread together with glad and sincere hearts and so we have saved our communion time for the end of this service this morning because just as in Acts chapter 2 they celebrated God's love and forgiveness with the breaking of bread we want to do the same thing now as we remember Jesus his body Beaten, his blood shed for us. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that we have the written record of the beginning of the church. What a day that must have been. I look forward, Lord, to seeing it reenacted or projected on a big video screen in heaven. Just can't imagine what that would have been like day of miracles people hearing the good news about Jesus in their own language miraculously and responding by the hundreds thousands and Lord uh, we thank you that just as they enjoyed breaking bread together that in these moments we would celebrate in that bittersweet way that we always do when we have communion. We would celebrate the sacrifice that was made for us on Calvary's cross by our wonderful Lord that enabled us to move from guilt to grace. In Jesus name. Amen.